0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of October 2022. Now more than a couple of weeks past the fall equinox, we are definitely into the dark half of the year, although temperatures have become increasingly unseasonable in their warmth with highs in the 60s pretty regularly this past week. I don't know about you, but here I feel... That these sunny days, these dry days, and warm days in October, especially, but even in September, they feel like a little bit of a gift. And I never know quite when the last one of them is going to be. And I feel compelled to get out and, and make the most of these days while they last, because I know the rain and cooler temperatures are definitely coming. If you're getting out and seeing anything, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there, especially birds. It's a good time of year for unusual birds. Please feel free to send me an email, sitcanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Joanna Young. She was in town as part of the Scientist and Residents Fellowship at the Kassan Science Center. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the International Arctic Research Center based out of University of Alaska Fairbanks. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with her describing a little bit of her work with ice and glaciers and we'll go on from there.
1: Well, I call myself a glaciologist, which is someone who studies uh, the frozen parts of the world, uh, the cryosphere. Um, But that can include things like sea ice and snow and permafrost. Um, But my area of expertise is in glaciers and specifically how the glaciers of Alaska are doing in recent climate change. So within the past few decades. And that can tell us a lot about, obviously, what's happening now, but what might also happen uh, within the next few decades in the future, too. And uh, have done a lot of work looking at the different glaciers around Alaska and, and how they're doing and how that's impacting communities downstream and ecosystems downstream and anything else that might be impacted by melting glaciers.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I like to do when the weather cooperates, which it, it kind of did this year, is go up. In 2004, I took a picture from the top of Gavin Hill here uh, that had Mount Bassey in it, which is the glacier. It's one of the glaciers that uh, melts into Blue Lake. And I just took it because I was up there. It was a sunny day. I didn't really think about it. If I'd been doing any sort of planning, I would have picked a much easier spot to get to. But it's a you know three-mile hike, essentially, <laughs> each time. And then the weather has to cooperate. But middle of September. And so I've been... In 2004 I took that picture and then I then I thought oh I should go retake those pictures mm. and so the last few years I've been going back. And one of the things that's been interesting to me just watching that is is there's clearly you know especially between 2004 and I think 2016 when I took the next one like it was obviously smaller. But then we had a handful of years with warm winters and then mm. warm summers and of course that isn't so great for snow and ice. But then we had some years where, one year we had a cold winter, but it was dry, so there wasn't much snow that accumulated. You know, there's all these different factors that go into how much snow is up there to start with. Uh, but then the last couple of years, there's been more snow, and, and it like, obviously so. But I was kind of curious, like, just looking at that, how long does it take for snow to turn to ice? What's that process like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It completely depends on where in the world you're talking about. So in places that are drier and that have less precipitation, it can take thousands of years. Some place like the middle of Antarctica, which is pretty dry, uh, snow just falls really slowly. There's just a little bit of it every winter. And so uh, it takes a longer time, thousands of years. But in a place like here, where the, we call it the mass turnover is very high in a place like this. So what that means is, like you said, a lot of snow coming in winter, potentially, and uh, then a lot of melt experiencing in summer. And, of course, that melt happens even if it's not a hot, sunny day. But if it's a rainy day, because rain is warm and liquid, and <laughs> that will melt glacier ice as well. And so you can see a lot of melting through rain as well. In an area along the coast, uh, one of the areas I'm most familiar with is the the Juneau area and the Juneau Icefield field. Uh, We're talking more like hundreds of years for snow to turn to ice because there's just so much snow falling that it gets incorporated into the glacier faster. And I, I should take a step back and explain that the way glacier ice forms in the first place is exactly what you hinted at. It's snow that over time becomes glacier ice. And so you have snow that falls in the high portions of the mountains at high elevations where it's colder. And uh, over the course of the summertime, not all of the snow melts away because it just tends to be colder up there and maybe there's a lot of snow. What you have then is another winter starts and snow is piling on top of last year's snow. And again and again and as these layers of snow build up on top of each other, one after another after another, the snow down at the bottom of the snowpack eventually gets compressed by the weight of the overlying snow, the overburden. And it gets compressed to the point of being, yeah, the density of ice. I should say a little bit less than the density of ice in your ice cube tray at Hmm. home because it has little trapped air bubbles in it in between the snowflakes. Um, So that's a little bit different. But that's one of the characteristics of glaciers is that it was formed from snowflakes originally. So it's quite different than ice from other sources like uh, frozen seawater or say uh, frozen river water something mm-hmm. like that yeah
0: yeah so i don't know if you have a sense of this but one thing i've i've long been curious about is like how much difference qualitatively is it between say you know this rapid melting that we're experiencing and little ice age happening cuz as my understanding is that glacier bay filled up relatively quickly. Like like there was, there's stories of the thing of people that lived there of the ice coming down, you know, and them having to move. So th- there was land there that had been available, was covered in ice Wow. in in their sort of time there. But now it's of course retreated rather remarkably in the last couple of hundred years yes. or so. Uh, so I'm kind of curious to that process of like this ice accumulating and coming down, like how, how quickly that Can happen going both directions? And and what's the like, are we all going to feel like we're in these terrible wintry conditions all year round? Or is it a pretty subtle change, you know, sort of qualitatively in our experience in in over the course of a year that's going to, you know, have a relatively speaking much larger effect on just the accumulation or not, you know, of, of snow and ice at right. higher elevations.
1: Right. Well, it does depend on the size of your glacier, too. Um, I would say, you know, for these, the, the glaciers that remain on Baranoff Island are fairly small. Yeah. They're little yeah. cirque glaciers, which means it's a French word for circus. Uh, and I think they, they call them that because they're kind of shaped like a circus tent, <laughs> sort of roundish, filling a bowl in a mountain. So small little sort of pocket glaciers that are left those glaciers might be able to be a little more impacted by a really good winter, a really good amount of snowfall one season. Certainly, you know, the glaciers that are way high up at the highest parts of the mountain too, because it's coldest up there, the more snow that falls, the more of the surface area will be insulated from melt for a longer time because the snowpack insulates and reflects the sun sunlight back. And so, you know, that can help. It can sort of help prolong the winter season effectively when you have a lot of snow that that doesn't melt away straight away off the bare ice but you know one winter one positive winter for a really big glacier it's probably not gonna have too much of an impact on just the long-term trends of warming that we're seeing and and in so many places compounded by long-term trends in less snowfall Mm. whether that means more rain you know, is one thing. In some, in some places, we're just seeing less precipitation altogether. In other places like southeast, it looks like the forecasts are really calling for more precipitation overall, but less of that will be a snowfall. And again, rain melts ice. It's warm. And so more precipitation in that case isn't necessarily helpful. I would say for the the question about Icy Bay, that's a really neat uh, oral history story that oh, you Glacier told. Oh, Glacier Bay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Glacier Bay. And, one thing one thing that's unique about tidewater glaciers, so glaciers that end in the ocean as opposed to those ones we were just talking on Baranoff that are that end, you know, on land in the mountains. So tidewater glaciers that end in the ocean and then they have a calving front where they calve icebergs into the ocean. Those glaciers, they kind of do their own thing. (laughs) They've kind of got their own rules and their own set of dynamics that has been studied by a lot of glaciologists over the years because it's pretty unique. They have the ability to sort of advance and chug along and move forward. And then they tend to retreat actually pretty quickly. The word people use is catastrophic retreat, which just means really fast rates of retreat. Kind of, no matter what climate is doing, they can still they can still follow that cycle, and it's called the tidewater glacier cycle, and that's just a it's sort of a complicated <laughs> cycle that happens because the dynamics of those glaciers are just different. They just they flow in a different way than uh, glaciers in the mountains do. So. I'm curious whether any of that oral history that you heard about folks having to move camps or move homes and communities was related to um, the Tidewater-Glacier cycle in that area. Hmm. But, yeah, certainly the the Ice Age, um, the Little Ice Age, was uh, a really dynamic time, and, and there was uh, – it was kind of the last the last push of glaciers being any size uh you know bigger than they are today um and having advanced quite a bit uh here in Alaska so about 250 to 200 years ago
0: yeah I, you know i had an opportunity to speak with um uh a while back with somebody uh, Jason Breiner, who is studying in southeast Alaska looking at, at the, their interest is in ice like last ice age, when did it come, when did it, or when did it retreat, really? When did places become clear and kind of looking at that? And one of the things that he said to me that I hadn't really thought about, and I guess from the way he said it, it sounds like most people don't, um, is that, you know, we imagine ice came out for the ice age and it retreated. He said, but, but really what's, you know, it's, it's coming and going all the time um, and sometimes faster, sometimes slower. Uh, but, but where we saw, you know, Little Ice Age was an example of a push out, but before that it had been back further and and now it's you know retreating even more rapidly um but but along the last 15,000 years you know these these mountain glaciers and tidewater glaciers are uh, presumably doing their own thing <laughs> uh and You know, that those things are dynamic that are, you know, they're just they're just happening in ways that um, and that's part of what he's looking at is like, okay, what can we say about and they're looking at uh, sediments in lakes, for example. And apparently that changes depending on the nature of the glacier, where it is and, and those sorts of things so they can start to. To look at that and that's a, a sort of a deep curiosity for me as well it's just like if we if we could run a, a time lapse of of sitka sound you know and Gla- ba- Baranoff island what does it look like over the last you know from glacial maximum to to now i don't yeah. know that that would be i mean like i guess they could do the computer modeling of it but getting the actual data to to support that would be a whole nother question so it's just kind of an interesting thing and i wonder about like if if what was life like during, as the ice was advancing in Little Ice Age, you know, that was colder, you know, clearly it had to have been, but was it like noticeably colder from, from our perspective? Would we be saying, man, our summers are terrible now <laughs> and they used to be good or or the winters? Like, Because I guess, as you were saying, there's different ways that the ice can not form or or form more. It's like more more precipitation, especially at higher elevations, falling to snow, even if you have the same amount to melt in the summer. So if you have a similarly warm summer if you're getting more snow in the winter. You can accumulate, or if it's dry, you could have colder weather, but if it's drier, you know, it could retreat even though it's colder. So I guess it's probably sort of hard to answer that question in practice without, you know, having actual (laughs) evidence of what the weather was like at those times.
1: Exactly. I think there is a lot of evidence about what was going on during the Little Ice Age. And my understanding, and this isn't exactly my area of expertise, but my understanding is that it was predominantly colder temperatures and that um that might have been you know on average um a few degrees uh colder than it is now um what does a few degrees look like? Oh, I'm not sure off the top of my head, especially given that, you know, in the past few decades here, we've seen, we've seen a few degrees of warming. And so um, w- relative to what baseline, was it a few degrees colder? I'm not sure. But it was enough. Um, it was enough to have, yeah, substantial advances and of these glaciers and to turn uh, probably, you know, what would have otherwise been rain into snow. So um just a few degrees can make a really big difference for glaciers. That's that's mm-hmm. something I think is really interesting.
0: Yeah, and I guess part of it is that we experience temperature. We don't really integrate temperature. Uh, essentially, glaciers and snowfields, they're integrating temperature over seasons, years, decades even. And we're experiencing it in the moment. So like mm-hmm. the difference between 55 and 60 isn't really that big of a deal to me living here in Sitka. If I have a summer day that's 55 versus 60, right. you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty similar, but extend that out over the course of a year on an average, you know, then that makes a much. I wouldn't necessarily notice that in my experience of temperatures in the same way as, you know, the. So it's a different sort of sensitivity, I guess. They're probably really like one hot day isn't going to make that much difference for, for a snowfield or a glacier, whereas it might make a big difference for me. <laughs> I would definitely notice that. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's interesting the way that, that different aspects of the natural world sort of experience, I don't know, experience, reflect maybe is a better way, reflect the what's going on at different scales, different timings, and, yes. and that sort of thing, and how it's different than sort of my own personal experience. But, you know, sp- speaking to folks like you, I get a chance to to sort of think about things on different scales, and, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to do that. I guess maybe it's a little bit of a, I, I guess one of the things that you learn as you do the work is is to start thinking about uh, the way that glaciers are working and, and that scale and timing of things and, and what's important for their sort of existence.
1: Yes, exactly. And I think, like you said, yeah, the difference between 55 and 60 might not feel like much to you, but the difference between 29 and 34 is an important one for a glacier. And if you have that difference over the course of a year on average, yeah, it's, it's going to have an impact. And um, the thing you said about timing is really interesting, too. That's a lot of the work I've done has been to look at how the timing of things might be changing in, for glaciers. And so typically what you see for a river that's downstream of a glacier is um, they're different than a river that's sourced from just snow melt or just rain melt or a combination, sorry, rainfall <laughs> or a combination of both. Um You know, a river in southeast Alaska that's from rain and snow tends to see uh, the highest volumes arriving into the stream about April when the snow is melting rapidly and we're getting into warmer temperatures. Uh, You might see a secondary peak right around this time of year, September, October, as we're getting fall rains coming in. Uh, For a glacier River system, on the other hand, if there's a substantial glacier in the headwaters of a river, the peak is going to happen. So, the maximum amount of volume in that river is going to happen about July, August. Um, You might not even really notice at all the snowmelt peak that typically happens in these other watersheds. And, of course, the July-August reason for the peak is that those are when we get the hottest temperatures, the mm-hmm. hottest air temperatures. And so the most snow and ice in the glacial system is, is melting. Um, and that's really important, that timing, because um, maybe a little bit less for us in Alaska, but in other parts of the world, there are very dry, arid places, uh, huge cities, populations. Actually, you know billions of people count on water coming from the high mountains, the glacial systems in the middle of summer, which are the driest, hottest months, and when water needs might be the highest because there 's no rainfall there 's no precipitation happening, and so um, there 's a lot of interest in in looking at the timing of things in glacial watersheds versus non-glacial watersheds, and also looking to see whether we're seeing changes in that timing. So there is a lot of um, evidence coming out of climate studies that's showing, you know, earlier arrival of what we kind of define as spring um, and a longer summer season and kind of later onset of fall temperatures And in many places, we're starting to see that in the glacial rivers downstream as well. Earlier arrival arrival of glacier water into the stream, um, and maybe it persisting even later. So kind of a longer season of glacial runoff overall. And um, when you step back and think about that, you can start to imagine different ways that that would be important for ecosystems downstream, of course, for people and infrastructure that's downstream as well. Um, you know, a, a species like salmon is really going to care about when, when the r- water is arriving into the rivers that they prefer, and what kind of water it is as well. Um, glacier water tends to be colder for obvious reasons. It just melted for mice, so it's, you know, tends to be pretty close to zero degrees Celsius. And uh, it also is, uh, for anyone who's seen a glacier river, it's, you know, it's not clear. It's, uh, it's very milky, maybe not the most, uh, aesthetic rivers (laughs) from, from the perspective of the water itself. It's very milky, very full of sediment. And that sediment is also chock full of nutrients like phosphorus and iron and nitrogen that are sourced from the glacier, from from the mountainsides that the glacier is eroding. And, um, so all of this is to say, yeah, a, a species like salmon is, is going to care when the water is arriving into the stream and uh, what type of water is entering when.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I remember talking to a naturalist in Juneau and and he says, oh, so your peak water is in the spring, right? And I was like, no, why would it be in the spring? It's in the fall when it rains hard. But and then talking to him, I was like, oh, we have tiny watersheds here on Baranoff Island. so. Mm-hmm in when you have a larger watershed, you have so much snow melting at once. Whereas here, when we have one storm system, you know, in a large watershed, it might just get one part of it and contribute uh, water. But here it's the whole watershed is getting dumped on all at once. There <laughs> you go. So so and then glaciers put on another because there are some streams here that are glacial fed, you know, our, our, our water, you know, our water supply for for drinking and then and then hydropower, both hydropower. Uh, stations here, are, you know, those are small glaciers. You know, not yes. not the larger ones, and um, but it, yeah, it's interesting to think about. You know, I, I guess probably water coming out of the Himalayas is is, is uh, you know responsible for a lot of people getting drinking water and and mm-hmm. usable water in in the areas where that that melts too. Exactly, um, and and probably the Andes as well. Some, especially on the on the coastal side where it's so dry,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that the timing of those could be. Yeah, significant in ways that, you know, I think it, it's interesting to think about the, I guess it's just like a big battery up there. Or not a battery, a, a, a sort of. Um, a, um,
1: a water tower. Yeah, a
0: water tower. There's another word that, uh, a buffer. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it, it provides all this buffering. It's it's not like it makes more water than there ever was, but but it's it's when it shows up and when it's released. And I suppose in a time of accumulation, you're actually getting less water out of it than you theoretically could have. But then that's saved for, it's like a bank, I guess. Maybe that was what I was thinking.
1: Long-term storage. Yeah,
0: long-term storage. And and then it comes out uh, comes out later and, and maybe evens out the flow a bit as well. Because as you were saying, it's like if it all comes down as soon as it falls, then you just get the water when it rains. And it there's a few places in the world where it rains steady, I guess, but most places seem to have pretty seasonal effects to precipitation. If you don't have any capacity to store that, Then it's here and then it's gone, um, which is a very different sort of ecosystem uh, can be maintained with that sort of a thing than with like steady, steady water supply. Exactly. And so when you're looking at, at places in Alaska, you know, we most coastal places certainly have plenty of water, generally speaking. Um, and I imagine they're interested in, like Sitka's probably interested in, well, what's the impact on our ability to generate power, for example, especially when the alternative is diesel, which is pretty expensive. Um, and I remember in your talk, you spoke a little bit about looking at Cordova and a situation there where maybe they don't have as much um, hydro capacity as, as Sitka does in, in our in our places. But, like, what are some of the questions that you try and sort of tease out and, and, and look at and, and answer when you're, when you're studying those sort of systems?
1: I think... Uh... What what is the hydropower capacity here in Sitka? How much is generated from hydro? Do you know?
0: I don't. For some reason, I can't remember what it is for the year because they they recently raised Blue Lake Dam another eighty three feet, ah. which increased the uh, the capacity, the year year round capacity. And currently, we aren't using enough, it like it's spilling. Like I, I think in terms of power generation ideal scene you let the dam fill up till it just isn't quite spilling and you never let it spill like you like that's you're you're maximizing essentially your your power output there um and of course year-to-year variability of rainfall is pretty high so that it like i mean it's always wet but some years it's really wet and some years it's only sort of wet yes (laughs) um so it's uh that that can vary but i for some reason 27 like megawatt hours or something is what comes to mind i'm sure that's probably not right. And some from the power, <laughs> power electrical utility could certainly correct me, but, um, but it's, it's, uh, more than the community is using currently, but when they were looking at, and, and looking at expanding the dam, um, like the projections were that it wasn't going to be enough if we right. didn't do that. Yes. Um, especially with electric cars coming online and those sorts of things, people using more electricity. So, um, it's always a little bit of a mystery what the future is going to hold, I guess, but you can't, Exactly. Turn on new power, uh, you know, by snapping your fingers. It's one of these things that has, you know, sometimes even decade long sort of uh, preparation that you have to do. So, yes, um, I I guess that you do the best that you can, I suppose.
1: Yes. Yeah. Lead up time is (laughs) is a really good thing. Um, Well, the situation in Cordova, I guess, is a little bit different. It sounds like they are about 60 to 70 percent hydropower and the rest is diesel. And, of course, you can imagine that the power generated through hydroelectric means is much less expensive um, than turning to diesel when they when they need that extra amount so um they have I think similarly two watersheds with uh, hydroelectric dams on them that have glaciers in the headwaters and I'm looking at one in particular that's called Power Creek, of course, <laughs> perfect name. And it's a little bit different than um, Sitka because it's not a lake reservoir with a dam um, at the end it's kind of a run of river mm. hydro dam, and so there's very little sort of reservoir behind this this what is an inflatable dam that they um, that's typically inflated, except every once in a while they deflate it just to flush the system, flush the sediment out, and then put it back up again and what Corderova is especially interested in knowing is how, of course, the changing glaciers upstream of this Run River Dam are um, changing and potentially altering the flow of the river. And that translates directly to power availability. Um, you know, it's pretty much a one to one connection to how much water is available, how much power they can generate. And um, so the glaciers are, of course, changing. They've been retreating a lot over the past few decades. Um, I'm doing some modeling studies to look at, uh, yeah, how those changes are, have been taking place since 1980 through today. And uh, that'll help us sort of understand what's expected beyond that as well. Um Looking at just the data from, so the the modeling data isn't quite complete yet, but looking just at their records of power generation at the dam site, they have really nice records going back to 2002, which is 20 years of data. It's pretty good. And you can see just in that that there's an increasing trend actually in the amount of power that they've been able to generate at this site um, as a result of having increasing water availability. So what's interesting there is I don't know yet, and this is what the modeling study is going to tell me exactly the driver behind that increase. So I can't say if it's because the glaciers are melting and contributing more melt into the stream, Um or if it's a result of something like increasing precipitation, which again is something that's being kind of forecast and starting to be seen uh, here in southeast, or that's south central, but same thing. Um, so I'm really curious to to get to the bottom of that and to see which of the changes is sort of driving that increasing increasing trend in in water flow and then therefore power availability. But what's what's interesting is that. So I asked this, actually, this question to a Sitka high school class the other day, and they had the perfect answer. My question was, so if you have retreating glaciers, shrinking glaciers, do you expect to see more or less water in the in the streams downstream of the glacier. And one student put their hand up, and they said, more. And another student put their hand up, and they said, less. And I said, you're both right. And it was just perfect. I couldn't have set it up any better than that. Because um, you you can have either situation, and it depends on where um, you are along sort of the curve of how we know glaciers are going to be retreating over time. So initially, as a glacier is shrinking, As it's uh, melting more and more, you're going to see more water in a stream, downstream of it, um, just purely based on there being more meltwater entering into the system. And so you see an increasing trend in water. But then at some point, you get a turning point, and the water amount actually starts to decrease coming from the glacier. And that's simply because at some point you the size of the glacier shrinks so much that it has less water to put in. There's just less of it to melt. And then you start seeing a decline. And um, generally speaking, here in um, south-central, southeast, what we think we're seeing is that we're still on the increasing part of the curve for most glaciers. We're still seeing increasing melt, so increasing glacial water entering into the rivers. There's going to be a peak water point at some point, and then we're going to start seeing decreases. And so, um, you know, that's a situation that, uh, like that's one of the questions I'm trying to answer for Cordova is where on this curve are we? Are we increasing Glacier melt? Are we decreasing? Um, And and that'll start to uh, be useful information for them for planning decades out from now.
0: Yeah, it seems like, that buffer that glaciers provide is, is, uh, you know, more than seasonal. If it turns to a system where it's strictly snow each year, you'll have that seasonal buffer, but not a, you know, year year over year buffer nearly as much. Uh, and I guess, you know, one of the things as you were, as you were explaining it, I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. Stability is really helpful for us, <laughs> you know, in terms of making plans and the way that we do things, it's helpful to have things be stable, but Earth being what it is, you know, variability is much more the rule of things, and and some a lot of variability. And so, one of the things that glaciers provide is is a certain amount of, uh, you know, that buffering that that buffers us against that that sort of variability. And I guess in a way, that's why we put dams up, uh, in part, is to to give ourselves some buffers from that uh, over at least some shorter scale. You know, I the, I hear on the on the news about the the big lakes in the Southwest being at the lowest level they've been since they first started filling. So there's only so much that buffer can do over, you know, even longer time periods of, of change. But, um, yeah, trying to figure out that buffering and and then planning around, you know, how much of that is available and how much variability, like, what are you going to do when you have a, a dry year? Uh, and you don't have, you no longer have that glacier up there that might've buffered you significantly when you just, for whatever reason, had, had you know, 70% of normal rain instead of 100%. Right. Uh, and that could be a, a real challenge for power generation, I suppose.
1: Right. And of course, what we're seeing now with climate change as well is increasing variability. Mm. And so we've always had variability. You know, that's weather, that's you have a hot day, you have a cold day, you have a rainy day, you have a dry day. We've always seen that and always seen differences from year to year, but we're seeing it at a to a greater extent, you know, more extreme extremes and more record-breaking this, record-breaking that than we saw before, long periods of drought, long periods of rain, things like that. There are a lot of ways <laughs> to look at variability and to look at all the different ways that that sort of weather has been changing with climate change. So um, yeah, this the question of variability is becoming even more complicated and uh yeah i think that's where having having that stability would would be extra nice
0: yeah well yeah it's i guess in some ways it is interesting sometimes, like with fires and stuff, it's like a lot of our ecosystems have, and then the streams were like, well, actually, that, that flushing out is important part of some of the streams that they've discovered. It is, you know, our desire for, for like the utmost of stability. It's like finding that balance, right? Where it's, it's the right amount of variability that we can man- we deal with, you know, and, and uh, that aren't really making things too static. But so you were mentioning that you model. Uh, you're modeling this, which sounds like computer stuff, yeah. but do you, I, I'm, I'm having seen your talk, I saw pictures from out on the glaciers and stuff. So you must be able to get out at some point. Uh, like how much of your work is, is based around actually getting out in the field and doing uh, measurements on on glaciers over, I mean, presumably like one-off measurements aren't nearly as helpful as, as looking at the glaciers over time and seeing what's happening. And do you get a chance to get out and, and be in the field like that a lot?
1: I do. Yeah, I used to, (laughs) I used to get to do it a little bit more. I had a baby last year. So that's Mm. put a little bit of a damper on things for the past couple years. But um, assuming things go back to, you know, my my state of normal, um, I used to do quite a bit bit of field work and get out to some really remarkable places. um, The Juneau Ice Field being one of them, we did a lot of helicopter and snow machine and ski supported work up there it was just wonderful and you're right that having these one-off sort of point measurements that are represent you know one data point in space and in time just a snapshot they're not as useful as something more extensive that fills in more gaps spatially and more gaps in temporally as, as far as a continuous time series and We can get a lot of data like that from, you know, other computer models, climate models and climate products, as they call them, um, that are available. Um, But those, you know, those products, those data sets that are temporally and spatially complete, um, they're mostly based on, on models. They have some field measurements, actual ground observations that go into them. Um, but they're also doing a lot of their own interpolation using physics. And so whether or not they are accurate at one point in time and space um, is hard to say without having those those data points that we talked about, those field measurements. And so while they're not spatially extensive, maybe, you know, it's really expensive to bump around in a helicopter and measure snow here, here, and here. So you try to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, you know, while you can't collect data all over the entire glacier, they're incredibly important for what's called ground truthing your your climate data or any of the data you're using to feed into your model. So um, they might be sparse, but they're really important. And yeah, some of the fun kind of types of data I've gotten to collect are uh, how much snow falls in the winter time, um, and so we go at the end of end of winter as best as you can get there when you think the end of winter is, but of course it 's always snowing in the mountains, so it 's really yeah. hard <laughs> What does end of winter mean i don 't know um, but you try to quantify how much snow fell over the course of the year, and that means d- it can mean digging really deep snow pits uh, on the glacier where you're With a team of four people, it can take you eight hours (laughs) to dig, you know, eight meters or 25 feet, or that's not the right math. Yeah, 25, 24 feet down to try to find where the summer surface was, you know, the dirty layer of snow that shows you, okay, this is last year's summer surface. And, uh, you know, just manual labor and lots of digging, lots of moving mass, but in a really beautiful spot. It's fun work. Yeah.
0: Yeah, digging uh a... 25 foot I mean because like in the especially higher up in Juneau Icefield kind of areas and places with lots of precipitation and plenty of of snow falling I would imagine like I mean presumably you're not building a like a like an open pit mine sort of style uh terrace thing but you can't also just do a straight column that's yeah. too deep unless you have like ropes to climb in and out of it and buckets to haul up yeah. like how are, how are you actually digging a hole that deep
1: D- it's usually a kind of a combination of those two. Yeah. So okay. a, a straight column, but with steps. I see. Yeah, yeah. some <laughs> kind of steps that lead into it. You can do a roped, Uh-oh. a roped entry as well. Uh, some f- some folks do that, and that's actually one way to facilitate getting measurements of density mm. all along the entire depth profile of the snowpack. You just hang on a rope, and then yeah, do your snow measurements. Do your along snow the- measurements.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess because seasonally, but you know. It, if if you're at an elevation where it's not cold all the time, which is a lot, of, I mean, there's a a lot of the mountains here. Certainly, you know, there it warms up enough, and I guess that affects how the snow layers. Are. I know avalanche people are really concerned about a lot of that stuff. You know, looking yes. at those those layers. I don't know how if it's as important for the kind of work that you're doing, which is sort of over long time longer timescales. But mm-hmm. is knowing about the kind of layers of a, the seasonal, uh, you, you know, the different layers that accumulated in in a particular season, is that useful for what you're doing?
1: Somewhat, yeah. Mostly because what we're trying to do is figure out how much snow fell over the course of one winter in water equivalent. And Mm. so to get a water equivalent um, quantity of the snowpack, you need two things. You need the depth of the snowpack, but you also need to know the density all along the profile of that depth. And so that does mean looking at the layers and taking density measurements all along All along the snowpack depth. Um, Sometimes you can get some other information out of the layers as well, Um, you know, telling you about things like, oh, this looks like it was either a big melt event, like there's an ice lens in here, or maybe it was a rain event that happened in the middle of winter. We're starting to see more and more of those, and you can really see it in the layer, just really dense lenses of ice. Um, So there's some other information you can get out as well.
0: Yeah. Is it is it not possible to just like do a core and let it melt and see how much water that is? Or do you, you have can. to actually measure it all? You
1: can do that as well. Yeah. Core measurements are way easier. Yeah. <laughs> and then you just get a bulk measurement of the whole mass of the core and you know oh, okay. it's yeah, it's guess, a known yeah. length. The and weight
0: is all all yeah, right. Yeah you don 't even need to let it melt, you yeah, just, yeah,
1: exactly. You can just weigh it with like a, a regular scale, you know the hang hang a piece of it on yeah. in a little bag on a fishing fishing scale, but' um, it's, it gets harder and harder the deeper the snowpack is to mm. do a good core, and uh, those ice lenses that I was just talking about they present a real challenge to getting. You know, coring devices can't always break through that. So sometimes just manual is the best way to go.
0: Dig a hole. <laughs> Dig a hole.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Wow. Well, I know that uh, one of the things that you, well, you mentioned to me, you mentioned in the talk was uh, you you are also doing research in, I guess, as part of your postdoc in environmental education. You get a chance to get out. And and the name I remembered was Girls on Ice, which I guess was right. Uh, (laughs) Maybe there's more than one program, but that was one of them. Uh, And so, yeah, i was curious a little bit about that. Like what's involved with this? It sounds like there may be people I mean there may be people here who could participate in that potentially, and yeah, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that
1: absolutely, yeah, this it might sound really tangential <laughs> to do environmental education research alongside glaciology but and maybe it is, but so far, nobody has told me I can't do both, so I'm doing both um but as uh While I was doing my graduate studies at UAF, I became really involved in a program called Girls on Ice, which you just mentioned, and it is um, a glacier-based program. That's, of course, how I got connected to it. It's a 12-day expedition for high school girls where um, we take them out on a glacier for 12 days and learn about science, learn about art, and also do a lot of outdoor skills as well. You know, it takes outdoor skills to move around on a glacier and be in the mountains. And it's just about learning and exploring and being inspired by a really cool new landscape that you probably wouldn't get to otherwise on your own. And I taught that for a number of years uh, during the summers, and I just started to see the power of being in a landscape like on a glacier that is so visibly impacted by climate change. And I started to hear from participants about how meaningful that interaction with the landscape was and how much they, for them, it really solidified the idea that like climate change is real it's happening you know i've seen i've seen it now with my own two eyes i've seen what's happening in this in this glacier landscape and and the spot where we visit is uh, in the alaska range so further north close to fairbanks and it's just this amazing place where because the growing season is much shorter it's a lot drier up there You can see on the mountainsides how big the glaciers were during the Little Ice Age, so 250 years ago about. And you can see where it is now. And the sense of scale of how much ice has been lost is just, it's pretty mind-blowing. And, you know, 100, like maybe 200 meters of, so 600 feet of a glacier thinning at different points. And it's just a really powerful landscape and very visual, you know, a really visual way to see some of the impacts of climate change. And so because I was witnessing this power of interacting with this landscape for the participants, I ended up doing a social sciences, yeah, environmental education research study on the impacts of interacting with this environment and found that Uh, it does really solidify the idea that climate change is real and happening, and they get to see it with their own eyes. Um, It's also very motivating for them to um, behave more on behalf of the environment and trying to protect the environment. And so uh, I'm continuing that thread through my postdoc and continuing to look at the impacts of our programs on the participants. But We've now expanded. We have um, our umbrella organization is called Inspiring Girls Expeditions, and we still host Girls on Ice, Alaska. We also have a sea kayaking program based out of Homer that looks at the coastal ecosystem, and we have a uh, pack rafting and hiking program in the interior near Fairbanks called Girls in the Forest, and they look at... Uh, Forest fire ecology and boreal ecology in the forests near Fairbanks. So we've got a lot of opportunities. And I want to say for anyone listening who is interested or knows someone who might be interested, we take 16 to 18-year-old high school girls or gender expansive youth, and the program is completely free for participants. So we provide everything they need to be out there, all gear everything is provided there's no cost um so pretty incredible opportunity
0: so so the only cost would be just getting there basically
1: well and even that we can we can support yeah yeah we can we kind of have a bit of a sliding scale process for travel Mm -hmm. but there there should be no financial barrier to having anyone who wants to be involved getting to these expeditions so that's what we do if if someone needs help with travel we provide travel
0: nice and where is the, like, what's the best way to learn more about this if there's anybody that's listening that knows somebody or is somebody that uh, would would be uh, able to participate?
1: The website is inspiringgirls.org, and we have several branches all over North America and actually even globally, um, but you can find the Alaska-specific programs on there, too, and learn about our application process. Our applications open in mid-December, so there's still a little bit of time.
0: Okay, nice. Well, I'll put a link to the website there on my on my webpage when I post post this show there. But hopefully, folks that are interested will uh, have a chance to to check that out. And yeah, it is interesting to think about. You know, part of part of this whole scale thing, as you know, they talk about shif- shifting baselines in ecology. Like we just know what's familiar and and for. You know, I grew up here in Sitka and have now lived here. And in and, and talking to other people who grew up here, but at a different time, it's been interesting to reflect on what essentially are different baselines or, or people that just live here and moved here, you know, their first few years here in that case are usually what sets their normal, their sense of normal, you know, like we have this sense of normal. Whereas for me, I think it was probably the 80s, you know, probably the late 80s when I was, you know, 10 to 10 to 15, essentially 10 to 10 to 20, maybe uh, from middle school to high school, maybe even a little bit of elementary school, and that's just what seems normal to me because that that chunk of time is sort of disproportionately important in my life, <laughs> you know, just from a perspective uh, way. It's it's as I get older and time goes by, you know, a year seems shorter somehow. I don't know how that works exactly, but <laughs> you know, it's just one of those things. Um, that that perspective is is just different when you have these but having an opportunity to go out someplace like that for me part of it's looking at these pictures from 100 years ago and seeing cross mountain and cross mountain uh you know you could tell it's the same mountain but it's very clearly like there was a lot of snow like much more snow there that there's still rock so it isn't just like the cross part was filled with snow it was like there was there was many years of snow and and ice no doubt, in there as well same with with bear mountain another mountain here close to town and i can see that and then for myself i just enjoy like looking at that what are the years what's going on 2012 was a year that um, the snow in the alpine just it didn't really melt that year for whatever reason i don't know what was going on you know part of it was uh, uh, but that was like the one off year i guess if everywhere were like that we wouldn't be in a situation where the where the glaciers but that was kind of our on the very cold end of our variability right now uh, but having that opportunity to to sort of explore firsthand and have direct experience is a lot different than being told about it you know and and hearing about faraway places it's not that those things aren't important it's just that they don't it's harder to connect with those things because they aren't you know sort direct for us so it seems like a a good experience there and as you have been tracking this you know i i I guess I'm kind of curious Late like, are is are some of these folks going into into the field, essentially, and starting to, you know, study environmental science in, in sort of a broad umbrella, you know, maybe a particular discipline or, or there?
1: Yeah, some are. It's incredible. We do um, keep in touch with alumni. And um, I mean, for some, we've even got an alumni, not from an Alaska program, but from one of our... Um, sort of sister programs who she's now finishing her PhD in glaciology after doing girls. On Ice. Oh, nice. So that was yeah. a, you know, that was a very direct connection. Um, but of course we don't expect every participant to go into glaciology uh, or go that far with it. We have um, others who, yeah, work in uh, environmental science or um, in the outdoor industry, um abroad, abroad, range of things um, engineering renewable you know renewable energy engineering things like that as well um, and um, what's fun is you know asking them how much of their experience with inspiring girls expeditions might have had an influence on them and uh, of course, for some, they were already on the track. they were already heading there, and then the the expeditions maybe just solidified their their drive to to sort of pursue that avenue. Um, but for others, we get feedback that it was just a life changing experience mm-hmm. and you know there's something about an intimate small group these are nine participants, maybe four instructors who go out together for these twelve days. Um, And it's just them. And uh, the instructors are professional scientists, artists, and guides, and the participants just have so much one-on-one time with them, so much interaction time to just... Learn about their lives, learn about their career paths, and just get exposed to some, you know, different possibilities. And uh, it can just be a really powerful experience for a lot of them.
0: And do they need to have any kind of experience beforehand? absolutely none. No. Complete beginner kind of? uh...
1: (laughs) Absolutely. We teach them everything they need to know. And so we really start at square one with, you know, for the Glacier program, how do we put on crampons Uh, how do we pack our backpacks how do we hike on ice Um, how do we move through snow for the sea kayaking programs it's how do you how do you paddle how do you get in and out of your boat everything is started just very you know everyone's learning together as a team Uh, very welcoming supportive environment it's just really fun we make it really fun and everyone gets to just slowly build up their skills over the course of the of the whole time. And we don't ask for grades. You know, nobody has to have prior experience in science or interest in science even. Um, I think a lot of folks that don't consider themselves science interested just maybe haven't been exposed to it in quite the right way yet. A lot of what we get in school is, you know, textbook science. And that, that can be powerful, too. But Um, For me, it was connecting it to the outdoors that really made me want to continue doing it um, sort of for my career. For a lot of other folks, blending together the art and science together can be uh, a really powerful sort of foothold into the world of science. So I think there are other... Uh, science folks out there who maybe just haven 't found the right way into yeah. it yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is uh, yeah glacier, glacier travel is a whole whole nother you don 't walk the same way as as you do on the rocks, but uh, <laughs> yeah I, I had an opportunity to do a little bit of that um, with some folks when I was in graduate school, just I joined the Alpine Club, and so we did some mountain mountaineering stuff and uh, but yeah, not too much glacier travel, but uh, enough to know that, yeah, you, it, there's there's concerns that you have in glacier travel that you don't necessarily have in, in other sorts of traveling. So
1: Yeah, you know. it's its own skill for sure. And it can be done safely and it can be done yeah. in a really fun way. And that's what we like to teach.
0: Well, and so I'm just curious, you know, you are you mentioned that you're kind of part of your research now, just looking at the outcomes for this. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me as the sort of experience that would tend to help uh, people involve bond pretty, pretty closely. So I, I don't know if it's part of your research or not, but i was, uh, just kind of curious. Is, is it something where, you know, folks do have bonds with each other that, that they then sort of remain friends over time as they as they go back to their, their hometowns and, and that?
1: I will say anecdotally, yes, yeah. absolutely. I haven't looked into that formally in a research capacity at all, but um, we know folks are really keeping in touch. And sometimes it might be like an entire expedition all nine participants kind of keep in touch and sometimes it's the one-on-one relationships that formed um between friends um i can think of an example of um yeah two participants who i think one lives in alaska one lives has lived primarily in washington and they've kept in touch now for 10 years and they still visit each other you know as often as they can and Um, both came from very different indigenous backgrounds, but have, um, come together over that and learned so much from one another and being in one another's cultures. And they found all these just really beautiful parallels. And, uh, yeah, stories like that just, I don't know, make it all the more worthwhile for me. Um, and and I'll add, too, that there are a lot of um, participants who keep in touch with instructors also mm-hmm. as mentors um, sort of in the longer term. We do a lot of, uh, you know, sort of helping guide people through college application processes if they're interested, if they would like some help with that, if they need letters of recommendation, all that jazz. So, um, yeah, we also... Uh, do you get to keep in touch as sort of staff and instructors with the participants? Too? Nice.
0: Yeah, that can be real helpful. Sometimes, sometimes it's mysterious. You know, all this, oh, yeah. all <laughs> these hoops and, and forms and paperworks and, and all of that stuff. You know, like, wait, what? That's not what I went to school for. Um, but having somebody that's navigated before to to sort of to help be a little bit of a guide at least or, or offer some suggestions, and sometimes that's just go talk to your advisor. You know, they're there for a reason. And it was funny when I taught at Sheldon Jackson, like some students were very proactive, but most just like they didn't even realize that that was a thing that they could be. Yes, And so it helps to have somebody that, that, you know, that you trust and have a relationship with. So Mm -hmm. I can imagine that that's that's really powerful for them. And there's just something about, you know, I've talked to a number of people over the years that that do various things, wilderness therapy, uh, you know, just sort of like um, not therapy, but just like um, just like uh, sort of. Having this opportunity to relax and and get away from sort of the modern environment of of always on phones and social medias and all of those things, but there 's just something about getting out into nature that helps helps sort of uh, reset the nervous system in a way mm-hmm. i guess and and quite literally i uh, as I understand it in you know from artificial lighting, if you spend five days out without artificial lighting then your your circadian rhythm starts to renormalize to, wow. to the to the cues Q- in alaska i don 't know how that works given our daylight hours <laughs> you know but uh, I have been curious to experiment with that, like go rent a cabin for, for a week and not bring any, uh, not bring any artificial lights and just see if my sleep schedule goes back to, uh, you know, sort of a normal one, but, um. But it is, yeah, it sounds like a a pretty amazing program and opportunity for folks. So I guess we just mentioned it again here. The website that they would go to?
1: Inspiringgirls.org.
0: Inspiringgirls.org. And so the applications are due in December for next year? They open in in mid-December, and then
1: they've got a good chunk of time to work through them.
0: All (laughs) right. So if you're interested, check out the website, and then I guess set yourself a reminder for December to... uh, to get back and, and look at that. And yeah, it sounds like a great, uh, a, a great opportunity for folks. And I, I heard some, some folks on the talk that, that were asking, requesting for a, a not, not high school age uh, girl, a version of yeah.
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Middle aged women on yeah, ice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would love that yeah. opportunity too.
0: <laughs> might be some, might be some folks interested in that, but <laughs> yeah, the science, the science aspect of it, it is, I was like, I, I have an interest. Like I do natural history stuff, and I do math and statistics stuff, and it's like the sciencey stuff in the middle, which is really it's about the um, the, the structured collection of data and and the anal- and, and the sort of like interpreting that data. Uh, I leave to the scientists, but I, I like both ends of it. I like being able to talk to people, and I like being able to play with data. But uh, me too. <laughs> uh, the I just like when I'm out, I just like to wander around and not really have to feel like I need to get this data or that data. So, but it is like having even if you don't go into being a professional scientist you know having the the interface and that opportunity to to have those conversations see that work that's happening it makes it more meaningful when you have the opportunity to talk like you have in a more informed perspective i think of what is it these people are doing and what is it that they're telling me based yeah. on what they're doing you know
1: well, and there's so many preconceived notions, of course, of what it looks like to be a scientist, right? And we've all heard about the studies where the grade schoolers are asked to draw a scientist, and they draw an old white guy with crazy hair wearing a lab coat. And this is just a really good opportunity to break down those notions and – um And also, you know, the notions that scientists are just really unemotional people who are just all about data and they don't have lives other than the data. Um, It's just an opportunity to meet, you know, people who happen to do science professionally and see that they have lives and interests and quirks and personalities (laughs) just like everybody else. And um, uh you don't always get that and yeah. until given the opportunity. So I think it's a really good chance.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, I appreciate you taking some time. Any, as we wrap up here, anything else you want to mention before we finish up?
1: I just had a really fun time and so grateful for the invitation to come and chat with you.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate your time here. I know you're leaving town. You'll probably be gone by the time this airs in a couple of weeks. But if folks want to check out more of what you're doing, is there a good place to, to see that?
1: Yeah, Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of my website. Um, but if they were to Google search, uh, Joanna Young and glaciers, I'm sure that they would find one or more options to learn a little bit more about what I do.
0: Okay, great. And I will, I'll, you know, check with you via email and get a, get a link for posting on the website as well. Great. So yeah, thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Joanna Young. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the International Arctic Research Center based out of the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I want to thank her for taking some time out of her visit here. She was here as part of the Scientist in Residence Fellowship at the Sitka Sound Science Center. And thank you for joining me this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.